Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. There's desperation and anguish. More than 80,000 Afghans have since arrived in America. But this story is still unfolding. I'm Andrea Smartin. In my new podcast, Stranger Becomes Neighbor, we'll find out what happens to these new arrivals in our communities. Who would help our newest neighbors? Follow us at kslpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. About a week and a half ago, if you were listening, you heard me get oddly emotional about an announcement that was made by a pharmaceutical company. Of course, I'm talking about the announcement to come from Pfizer and later Moderna that they, those two companies are in a position to apply to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration for emergency authorization for its COVID-19 vaccine. Specifically, Moderna today intends to make that application, and that comes after it was revealed by the company that they are showing uh, data that they claim indicates a 94.1% effectiveness against coronavirus, COVID-19, and not just that, but 100% effectiveness at preventing severe cases of the disease. Absolutely astounding. Absolutely uh, astounding. There will come a day uh, when this is all behind us and we're going to sit down and look at the lessons learned by the rapid development of this vaccine, what that means to uh, to to science, to future science, uh, to the field of developing vaccines and epidemiology. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, to deeper dives further on down the road. But before we get there, uh, there is much yet still to do. There are questions of distribution. There is questions of prioritization. And that brings us to this next conversation. We, uh, it's pretty clear and pretty well accepted that it will be first responders, uh, rather, I'm sorry, uh, healthcare workers uh, in the hospital setting who will be the first to receive uh, these vaccines. And different plans call for different prioritizations after that, but uh, the debate still endures. Who should be then uh, next to get the vaccine? This morning, uh, there was some great radio, and this conversation played out on Dave and Dejanovic's program. Uh, Dave Noriega uh, joins me now to to recap some of what he learned and share some of his own thoughts. Dave, uh, sir, how are you? Good. Thanks for having me. First off, it's great to be back. It's great to see you again. It's been over a week. I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Very much so. Thanks. Tell me what you uh, discussed this morning, with whom did you speak, and what did you learn? Well, I, I think we all just kind of accepted the fact that when it was announced that healthcare workers would be the first to receive the vaccine, that we were all just fine with that. And I think maybe just because it's the nature of our profession, uh, I started asking, well, well, why? why? And is that the, the right prioritization? Because right now, as you look, and the state of Utah has this on their website, on their uh, coronavirus.utah.gov. Uh, they have the layout. This is who's going to get it first. This is who's going to get it second, third, and this one you can expect it. Uh, so I started looking at it. Do you know who comes in the third group from March until July when you can be expected to get vaccinated? The 65 and older crew is in the third wave. The, the third, third wave, phase. not until March. The 65 and older crew that are the most vulnerable that are hospitalized at the highest rate, that are dying at a a rate that is exponential to everybody else. So why is that group, the 65 and older crew, why are they being prioritized so far down the road? And that's where my concern was. 
and I didn't understand it. I don't understand it still because all of a sudden we're no longer prioritizing age and the most vulnerable. We're prioritizing your job. And that is where you lose me. That's where I get confused because I can tell you this. I love my first responders and I love my healthcare workers. I love all these people that are making all these sacrifices. But if you're talking about a 25-year-old healthy nurse, should she be prioritized over my 75-year-old mother? Do, do we know, is, is the science yet settled as to whether or not uh, a vaccinated individual is, it will, will not be a carrier? If you're vaccinated, is it possible for you to be contagious? I don't think that you can. I don't think uh, that that's the case. And so let's let's assume that someone who is vaccinated will not be a vector, will not be transmitting yes. the, the virus. Is it is it also fair to assume that those 65 plus are more uh, able to remain, say, isolated or at home? Yes. And then those those younger individuals, the healthcare workers, those whose profession puts them at greater exposure or, or, or exposes them more frequently to the more elderly, is it possible that vaccinating them does, in fact, add greater protections to, to the elderly? That's exactly how I read it. Okay. So, for example, say we vaccinate everyone 65 and older. You're removing well over half of the hospitalizations because they never end up in the hospital in the first place to infect the nurses and the doctors and the other healthcare workers. So you are helping the healthcare workers by reducing the people that are ending up in the hospitals. But again, but, but where did that, where did that hospitalized cohort, where did they catch the virus? Well, they're catching it from the patients, Right. I mean, that, you're talking about those who are in long-term care facilities. Well, whether it's a long-term care facility, whether you're a doctor at an, at an ER or a nurse in an ICU, uh, you're going to catch COVID from this environment, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's why they're being prioritized as the first to receive the vaccine. A- and I think that's where we're just looking at it wrong because we're, we're focusing on those that are being exposed versus those who are most vulnerable. And we always have to look at this, I think, as those that are most vulnerable. And where we've missed the boat, I think, along the way, for the past nine months, we've been making these big sweeping decisions, treating the the seven-year-old first grader the same as 95-year-old grandma. Mm -hmm. They're not in the same boat. They're not at the same risk, and they're not uh, being hit with COVID with similar symptoms. I have often wondered why why the why the guidance was not more circumstantially specific. Yes, if you are in this age category, because we have seen the damage that can be uh, you know heaped upon you if you come down with this deal, uh, you do this. And we look at other. You, you talk about the seven year olds uh, have had a, a far different experience as an age cohort. It is interesting that uh, that the guidance is, for the most part, universally applied. Why the switch? Everything we've discussed, everything we've looked into, all of our numbers are demographic generated. So it's, it's sex, it's uh, age, it's racial. We've included all these things, but all of a sudden when we actually have the vaccine in our hands and we're ready to distribute, we don't take any of those things into account. We look at your profession. And that's why 
I look at it and I think we this is a big this is a big miss. Like maybe it's the right decision. I'm not a doctor, but I'm looking at it and all I've been told for the past 10 months is if you are elderly, stay home. If you are young, don't visit your grandparents. Don't go to Thanksgiving dinner. How many times have we heard that? Because right. not because you're going to catch it, Lee, because you're a, a young, healthy person. Thank you. Uh, very healthy, very young, very <laughs> handsome, all these things. But the danger was always you're going to pass it because you're, you're probably asymptomatic, but you're going to pass it to mom and dad. Yeah. And they're the real risk. Well, I wonder if I wonder if administering the vaccine to the frontline workers, to the essential folks, to those who are, by the nature of their profession, in contact with more people than would be the case for someone 65 plus, someone who, who is, say, retired and more able to stay home in isolation. I wonder if the vaccination of those younger, more mobile people actually is a protection of the uh, of the the vulnerable class you described there are far too many of that group right there's way too many uh two-year-olds to 65 year olds to vaccinate when we can become targeted right and say listen i'm just going to give it to all the 65 year olds and if you have an underlying health condition and you're 45 years old but you have diabetes and you've had a a a heart condition or a lung issue then we're going to prioritize you as well but right now we're just blanket, and I think anytime you take a blanket treatment, you're missing an opportunity to become focused, to be uh, very direct and, and surgical in how you combat this. Uh, our, our time has expired. I'm so sorry. Uh, there's a lot more I want to talk about on this front. Luckily, luckily, what we're describing right now is not something that's going to play out over years and years, uh, but rather is a question of months. There right. will come a time, in fact, 12 months from right now, hopefully we won't even remember some of these conversations we're having today. Maybe uh, even six because, months. Yeah, you yeah. know, fingers crossed. Uh, let me ask you this, uh, and it's a pure hypothetical that just jumped into my mind. If we are all given, say, a, a card or a ticket or a coupon that gives us access to the vaccine based on our circumstances, and it is transferable, yes. uh, to whom would you transfer yours? Uh, Mom. Outstanding. Easy. I love this idea. <laughs> Lee, I think you touched on something with, with 10 seconds to spare. <laughs> But yes, here's your card. Give it to whoever you want. All righty. Uh, we're going to take a break right now. When we come back, I, I want to play for you some of the comments made by uh, guests earlier on D2. Plus, I want to put that question to you. If you could transfer your card to someone else, if you could transfer your vaccine, to whom would you give it? Uh, that's up next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. You know, I took the week off last week, and having a break from talking about the coronavirus it was, was nice. It was nice. <laughs> anyway, I'm back at it. Here we are today. Uh, the great news is the wonderful news. The news about which I got so emotional about a week and a half ago is the fact that we right now are knocking on the door of having a distributable back vaccine, uh, and it is going to be healthcare workers that are uh, the first to receive it, able to then render care to those suffering. And over the the, the very short near future. We are going to see, uh, worst case scenario, worst case scenario, late July, uh, all Utahns are able to receive a vaccine. There's a phased uh, approach to this, an anticipated timeline for vaccine distribution. You can find that at coronavirus.utah.gov. Uh, I'd invite you to have a look at that just so you can understand what the what the plan right now is for Utah uh, and 
With that said, I too want to uh, remind you of some special coverage here on KSL News Radio. Be sure to tune in at about 4:45 today. We're going to continue our Hope on the Horizon series that's sponsored by Signia. And today, KSL News Radio's Paul Nelson will introduce you to some of those who have participated in vaccine trials to bring this pandemic to an end. Earlier today on David Dejanovic's program, they had some conversations uh, with various uh, individuals in the community. Uh, one of them, Brent Jecks from the president, uh, or he is the president, rather, of the Utah Fraternal Order of Police. And the, the question was posed by Dave and Debbie was, who should get the vaccine second? We know that, uh, of course, those first in line will be the healthcare workers. And as uh, plans are worked out and finalized around the country, who ought to be uh, next in line. And so Dave and Debbie did a great thing. They, they knocked on the doors of various leaders throughout the community representing uh, different sectors of the, the community and asked, OK, who is it that you believe should be uh, next to receive the vaccine following uh, health care workers who find themselves in high risk areas? I'll tell you right now, I want to put that question to you as well. So in a moment, I'm going to ask you to, to pick up the phone and give me a call. You and I can have a conversation about this. But first, let me uh, play for you some of the responses. First one came, as I mentioned, from Brent Jacks, president of the Utah Fraternal Order of Police. He was on D2 earlier today and gave his opinion on who uh, he believes should get the COVID-19 vaccine following healthcare workers. I don't think that this is a time for everybody to push to the front of the line to make sure that I get the vaccine or that my life is more important than somebody else's. I, I think we have to look at it as, as uh, who's the most vulnerable and, and get it to them and in that population. That's a noble view. Yeah, it's a very noble view, and it's uh, similar to what we heard from uh, Dave. I put out a, a hypothetical scenario towards the end of our conversation. I should have done it earlier. It would have been fascinating to let that chat play out. And it was if once the vaccine becomes available to, to you and me generally and we are issued, say, coupons uh, or somehow able to demonstrate that we are in a category of individual able to at that time receive the vaccine and if that coupon or ticket or whatever you call it a token (laughs) a vaccine token if it's transferable uh, would you give it away and if so uh, to whom would you give it something to think about certainly it's not uh, a proposed plan I don't see any uh, coupons or tokens or anything like that uh, right now available Uh, and I don't know how you know individuals would be identified as fitting into these various categories. That's all still uh, to come. But the conversation on D2 continued. Heidi Matthews was next up. She, with the Utah Education Association, gave her opinion on who should get the COVID-19 vaccine following following the healthcare personnel who work in high-risk environments. I think what we need to prioritize is, is the, the essential work that happens in our community and what is going to have the most impact for 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 everyone and we can see how important our schools are in the infrastructure of our communities there you go uh fascinating stuff so i want you to think about that question uh yourself following those healthcare personnel who work in high-risk environments after they have received the the vaccine. And I think it's a pretty much a consensus that those folks should be at the front of the line, right? They uh, quite literally expose themselves daily 
to this infectious virus, this novel virus, which uh, you know has the potential to be so ravenous to the human body. It's a, it's a terrible thing, as you well know. And so those individuals who dedicate themselves day in and day out to combating such a thing, I think there's really no question that they ought to be uh, the first to receive that. The, the natural question and where there is room for discussion comes in who ought to be next in line. 57500, that's the Utah Community Credit Union text line. I'd love to hear from you. Also, would invite you to get on the phone. Uh, the, the call-in number is 801-575-8255. That's 801-KSL-TALK. That's the, the, the call-in number. I'd love to hear from you. Also, want to know your thoughts on this, the notion of can your employer require you to get a COVID-19 vaccine? Can your employer require you to get a COVID-19 vaccine? The answer, for the most part, you might be surprised, is yes. The answer, for the most part, is that, yes, your employer can put as a requirement for your employment that you uh, have received a vaccination. Now, it's not that common. It's not a common practice for most employers to compel their employees to uh, receive a vaccine. And in fact, compel, probably not a great word because uh, it really is, you know, not, you're not compelled, you're not forced. But uh, I, I should phrase it better, a vaccine uh, as being a condition of employment. Now, how does that work? Well, it turns out that uh, for, the, for the most part, there's nothing that prohibits uh, action like that on the part of uh, an employer. To, to explain it better, here I have uh, an attorney, Lindsay Ryan. Uh, she recently spoke to Yahoo Finance and described the legality of requiring vaccines. So here uh, is Lindsay Ryan, attorney, explaining vaccines and the legality that could uh, be present when it comes to an employer compelling employee vaccination. Looking historically back at other vaccines, the general answer is that yes, employers can require their employees to get vaccinated as a condition of employment. Now, you know, like with everything, just because it's legal doesn't mean that it's absolute um, or that it's recommended. Um, We've already seen, you know, historically with certain employers that, for example, hospitals and healthcare providers will require vaccines like flu vaccines. The difference, of course, with the COVID vaccine um, is that the vaccines such as flu or chickenpox have been around for a long time. So we have long established health data to look back on. Um, but the COVID vaccine not only um, is going to be coming to the table very quickly, but we just don't have that long-term health data. Um, so employers know less about it um, and employees are going to be understandably more reticent about getting vaccinated. You heard there, as described by Lindsay Ryan, a attorney, a principal attorney with uh, Pulsolini, a law firm, uh, why she spoke there with Yahoo Finance, that it's not a common occurrence. It's not common, and it's even less likely in the light or in the face of the fact that uh, the COVID virus uh, and the vaccine to prevent it are both very new things. In other settings where vaccines uh, are required or where there is more pressure to be vaccinated, those come uh, in circumstances involving uh, vaccines and viruses that have been here for a long time. Uh, where we have been able to collect data for a long time. Anyway, uh, the two questions. Who do you think should be behind behind those healthcare workers in high-risk environments? Who should be behind them in line to receive 
uh, a COVID-19 vaccine? That's question number one. I want to hear from you. The number is 801-575-8255. Question number two is, should employers be able to compel vaccination? Should employers be able to compel vaccination? And if your employer compelled you to get vaccinated, would you stick around or look for new work? Your call's next on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Welcome back to Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry. There are new numbers to come from the Utah Department of Health regarding the coronavirus. In just a moment, we're going to get to calls relating to the vaccine. Let me share with you first these uh, new numbers. There is an increase of 1,897 cases from yesterday, 1,897 additional Utahns have tested positive. That puts the rolling seven-day average for positive tests at 2,312 per day. And the rolling seven-day average for percent of positive lab tests, 21.5%. And then hospitalizations, final two numbers I'll share. Hospitalizations, 560 Utahns right now hospitalized with COVID-19. And in terms of deaths, uh, total thus far since coronavirus showed up, 871 Utahns. Uh, today there have been three more uh, than yesterday. Three more uh, Utahns have lost their lives. Anyway, we are heartbreaking stuff. And hopefully as we continue to uh, you know, get the approval for the various vaccine candidates that are out there, Moderna today, in fact, applying for uh, emergency authorization and approval from the FDA. That uh, will get uh, a very, very helpful ball rolling uh, ultimately towards uh, you and me and grandma and the healthcare workers and the cops and the teachers and the students all uh, having that uh, injection and a safeguard against this terrible, terrible virus. Uh, but it is not universally available right now. There will need to be a certain measure of prioritization once this, va- this vaccine arrives here in the state of Utah. I was very grateful to uh, Dave and Dejanovic this morning, had a fascinating uh, series of conversations with various leaders throughout the community, getting opinions as to who should, after healthcare workers in high-risk scenarios, after they r- receive uh, the vaccine. And I think, I've said this before, and I think it's true. We'll go to the calls and see if they'll agree in a moment. Uh, but I think it, it's pretty universally uh, agreed upon that those healthcare workers in high-risk settings uh, really ought to be the ones uh, receiving coronavirus vaccinations before uh, the rest of us. M- my thinking on that, uh, and again, we're all armchair Facebook epidemiologists, uh, and so you, know, you got to take what I have to say and what you debate around the water cooler uh, with a grain of salt. Uh, but my thinking is those individuals who, uh, you know, by the nature of their employment are quite literally on the front lines in the hospital setting, in the high-risk circumstances, interacting with those suffering from the coronavirus, they have a a finite skill set. And by that, I mean not that their skills are finite, but that there are only there are only a finite number of individuals who possess that very specific skill set, which over the past number of months has evolved and been honed uh, and has improved to a point where it's able to uh, combat the coronavirus. There is unique knowledge in the heads of those men and women who uh, are fighting the coronavirus in the hospital setting. And uh, I think we need to protect that knowledge and we need to protect that ability for healthcare workers to care for others uh, because 
you know, it's it's not an infinite uh, resource. Anyway, uh, let's go to the phones. Katie from Murray uh, wants to talk about uh, the vaccine here. Katie, what, what do you think about all this? Yeah, so I think that definitely the healthcare workers should go first. But next in line after them, I feel like there is such a high um, rate of infection and deaths among people in assisted living facilities. And so they should be the next ones to get the vaccine. And then, honestly, we don't have years and years of research for this vaccine. And so I'm wary and cautious myself about getting it because I don't know what the long-term effects would be. And I'm young and healthy, and so I'm I'm glad to step back and um, and not be one of the first. And then your second question about employers, I think that it's all about the language. Sure, employers can compel their workers, but they should not require them. And, you know, even in healthcare, there are some people who can't, for whatever reasons, get vaccines, and they make them sign a, sign a waiver. So right. if, if a worker decides that they would rather sign a waiver than have the vaccine, again, they should not require, but they definitely should compel right. everyone to do it. And you, do, you, you bring up a, a good point, and we see this uh, applied in the school setting also, and it comes to you know, potential violations of the, of the ADA uh, or violations of an individual's uh, right to worship the way they would. There are uh, exceptions to vaccination rules available to you. Now, <laughs> it depends. If you apply, you know, some of the statistics that we have learned nationwide about uh, Americans' willingness to get the vaccine, there are some fears that uh, that should an employer uh, require an employee to get vaccinated uh, because of the the reality that that exemptions are legal, could could the filing of the paperwork required to secure those exemptions overwhelm HR departments throughout the country? I don't know, just some of the uh, logistical considerations to make. Next up on the line, it's uh, Andy from Roy talking about who ought uh, to receive the coronavirus vaccine following healthcare workers. Andy, what do you say? Well, I I believe that, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to get rid of the, the COVID virus. And so, you know, after the healthcare workers, which I agree ought to be first uh, with what they, uh, you know, put themselves in harm was way like that. But next we need to figure out what is going to be the fastest way to knock out the uh, coronavirus and by with the use of the vaccine and that should be the way it sh- um i don't know if it should be a group more than it should be what what way is going to get rid of the coronavirus the fastest i see i see aggressive offense in our fight against uh, against the the virus do whatever we can to in an expedient fashion uh wipe it out and eradicate it that's that's the view yeah, that that's my opinion. Yes, right. I mean, and I, I'm I'm prior law enforcement too, and I totally agree with uh, what was t- said about that as well. I mean, that I don't know if we as law enforcement actually have much of a, you know, I, I agree we do have some exposure, but um, I I think I agree with the way that was put out. I think there's other groups that need it faster, or um, than what we poss- possibly would have. Uh, well, listen, Andy, thank you for your service in law enforcement. Thank you for that. Thank you for listening and calling in. Uh, fascinating point of view. Uh, final call comes from uh, a healthcare worker himself, Scott, calling from Ogden. Scott, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Lee? I'm all right. I'm grateful to you for listening and calling in. Talk to me about your point of view. 
Uh, yeah, so I, I'm a case manager, registered nurse uh, for home care. Uh, we have been seeing, obviously, an uptick in patients coming home from the hospital that are COVID positive. Uh, I'm, I'm, I agree the, the healthcare workers are important, but I also agree that our most vulnerable needed needed as soon as they as as those home as those uh, healthcare workers do. Uh, you talked about a possible transferable type of thing with Dave, and I thought that was awesome. And I would, I would transfer my to my mother, who is who is highly at risk because of healthcare or problems. Uh, I also, you know, knowing what I work in with home health, uh, with medical, that they're not going to make it mandatory yet like the flu shot is. Uh, that's probably going to be put off for another year or so as they find what, uh, how, how effective this could be. Uh, but I do. I do believe our, our most vulnerable need it right up there along with, with health care. I would give it to my mother if I could so that she could have it first. Uh, that, that's, that's really how I feel. Uh, it's, I'm not afraid of it. I would take it in a second. I, I trust our the, the vaccine that is. That is yes. I, I I trust the I trust the way it is. So, but anyway, I would yeah I would love yeah. to give it to to those most vulnerable first. Very good, uh, Scott. Listen, thank you for uh, the the work you do taking care of those who need it. Scott, again, uh, calling from Ogden. My thanks to you. Uh, before we go to break, let me remind you uh, to tune in this afternoon, uh, just before five o'clock, four forty-five, as we continue our Hope on the Horizon series. It's sponsored by Signia, and today KSL News Radio's. Paul Nelson is going to introduce you to some of those who have participated in vaccine trials to bring this pandemic to an end. That's coming up later today on KSL News Radio. After the break, after the break though, just moments away after the get, after you get some news, it's going to be you and me chatting here about the monolith. Yeah, I didn't even know what that word meant. <laughs> in full disclosure, until last week, and now it's got my attention 100%. Monolith talk. Get some conspiracy theories and some spooky music ahead on Live Mike. I'm Lee Lonsberry, and this is KSL News Radio. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.